The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. Buzzers professionally make sure that certain sentiments become viral. They monitor the kind of conversations that exist, what kind of news spread that's talked about with fear or negative sentiment, positive sentiment, and then they like throw balls and see which one bounces back. What we do know is that they do mobilize sentiments, they do mobilize or spin news in a certain way so that it creates a certain effect among voters. In this episode, using social media to game democracy in Indonesia. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Indonesia has a population of close to 270 million people, and around 150 million of them are active on the internet and social media. Most of those are eligible to vote. So it's no surprise that in Indonesia, as in many countries, social media looms large on the political landscape. Its powerful influence on Indonesian politics first stood out in 2016, when an edited video clip of a campaign speech by the then governor of Jakarta went viral, leading to massive protests calling for him to be tried for blaspheming Islam. Governor Basuki Jahia Purnama, better known as Ahok, is an ethnic Chinese and a Christian. In the wake of the social media storm, Ahok was officially charged, lost his bid for re-election and eventually his court case and was imprisoned. At the same time as the use of social media has grown in Indonesia, there's been a parallel rise in religious conservatism among Muslims and an increase in wealth disparity, despite the dramatic growth of the nation's middle class. So what is the relationship between social media, economic policy and the growing influence of religious conservatives in Indonesia? How do the vast array of political actors harness social media to serve their ends? And in a political system awash with fake news designed to whip voters into a frenzy over one issue or another, what can be done to safeguard Indonesia's democracy? Joining us in the studio to examine the complex connections between politics, religion and social media in the archipelago is Indonesian political scientist and media analyst Dr Inaya Rahmani of Universitas Indonesia in Jakarta. Welcome back to Ear to Asia, Inaya. Thank you, Ali. Thank you for having me here again. Let's start by fleshing out that picture of social media in Indonesia. Is it correct that Indonesians have the fourth highest rate of social media use in the world? Yes, particularly for Facebook users, Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world to adopt Facebook in their everyday communication. And actually, Indonesia is also one of the largest democracies in the world. So this number kind of mirror each other. So who's using Facebook and other forms of social media? Is it largely young people? Because, of course, Indonesia has a very large young population. Yes, most of them are young people, particularly digital natives. But numbers have continued to rise since uh, 2010 in terms of internet adoption and internet penetration throughout the islands. And reports have cited uh, roughly 60 to 70 percent of the total population is already online now. So to say that uh, young people dominate social media use in Indonesia is not fully correct. 
They are more expressive, yes, because being digital natives, they produce content and consume content at the same time. But different demographies have uh, showed different kinds of characteristics of communicating online. You talk about growth since 2010. What has sparked that growth? What's really behind that enormous take-up of social media? The most obvious answer would be the internet infrastructure. The government of Indonesia since 2014, especially under Jokowi and Minister Rudy Antara, have built large-scale projects, infrastructure projects, and most notably in the remote islands. So they are making sure that internet is accessible to the village level. So that makes a difference in the rural areas, because in the urban areas, especially in the largest, most urbanized, industrialized cities, market-driven internet infrastructure development is already on the go. But for rural areas, for remote areas, especially the outermost parts of the regions in Indonesia, the government programs have been quite consistent in the past five years. So really, it's just a matter of availability. It is, and accessibility. So what are people using it for? I mean, I suppose that's a strange question because everyone uses social media in their own way. But do people have a particular preference for expressing political views? Is it largely very much about life and lifestyle? Is there anything that you can pull out that characterises social media use? Of course, as you said, different kinds of segments of internet users have different kinds of practices. But if you see it as a pattern or more generally... I would say that people's political practice has now intermingled with economic practices, political practices, personal communication. So if I give you an illustration, a person who I trust online, who I may know or not know in real life, can have influence over how I determine my choices in the elections. And at the same time, when algorithms read that behavior that I'm following a certain figure online, then Twitter or Facebook or Instagram can begin reading my behavior and then selling things to me on the election day. Like, for instance, if I show my purple finger, which is a kind of ink that we get after we vote, then I can get a discount to buy coffee on Starbucks or any local coffee shop. And I'll look at the whole issue of how social media is used in the elections and also by the various political parties. But before we do that, let's have a a closer look at the Ahok case. If you can just remind us of what happened there and just how key social media was. So the Aho case was prominent because it triggered what was arguably the largest religiously driven uh, mass demonstration in Jakarta and perhaps Indonesia. A former lecturer named Buniani reposted, re-edited a two-hour video into a short video. Uh, of a speech that Ahok had of, given. Of a speech that Ahok had given, which was originally posted in an official uh, website. So as governor, as a public official, one would travel regularly to regions within the administrative area. And Buniani cut the video of that speech and then focused on a part where Ahok said, Ladies and gentlemen, you have been lied to with a verse in the Quran saying that you cannot vote for a non-Muslim leader or a kafir leader or an infidel leader. And this short video was given the title Defamation to Islam. And it spread very, very quickly like fire. And mainstream media picked it up and people were talking online and then hashtags about defending Islam emerged online. And it was really, it's virtually impossible to pinpoint who pushed the video 
to become so extensively magnified and spread. And indeed, the Ahok case is held up as the standard bearer of the increase in religious conservatism, isn't it? Uh, Yes, I would say so. Why do you think there is that increase in religious conservatism? What's driving that? Two scholars that I respect studied this. One is Professor Fidi Hadis from University of Melbourne, who wrote a book on Islamic populism. The first scholar, I think, who talked about this was Professor Martin van Braunissen regarding the conservative Islamic turn. They say, especially Braunissen said in early 2000s, that the repression of Islamic politics under the new order regime, the authoritarian regime, caused a kind of backlash after Reformasi, and you have religious conflicts, you have militant hardline Islamic groups becoming much more vocal. I look at it from a different angle. I look at how neoliberal policies, how industrialization have normalized Islamic practices in otherwise secular spaces. Can you explain that a bit? For instance, as an illustration, like in many parts of the world, the state is becoming less and less present in the provision of social services, basic services. Uh, We can look at housing, we can look at health services or education services, because quality education, quality health care, quality housing is provided by private entities and not by the state and not as a service that is accessible to any citizen just by virtue of being born in a place or migrating to a certain place that you're rightful of a basic standard of living. These services are provided by private corporations through market mechanisms. And because of this, it creates a sense of insecurity, a sense of instability, because the state is not there to make sure we don't fall through the cracks. And in this increasingly volatile and precarious world, Indonesian Muslim middle class use halal certificates, sharia certified hospitals as a guide for them to consume their way into upward mobility to make sure that there is more stability in this uh, increasingly precarious world. So filling a space that the government may have filled but doesn't. Even though under Jokowi, things like health care, a lot of money has been spent and there has been quite significant change in health care. Is it just that there's not enough? I think in this political climate, during the elections and general elections, and where there is a very fierce competition between elites and coalitions, the disinformation, the hoaxes, the fake news that is spreading to to disrupt trust towards the government because you can't really make sure which information is true or false. Even when there are promises to provide universal health care or universal social care, it's read as an empty promise by a political candidate trying to win the race. So even though empirically or factually, social and health care is getting better because more budget is thrown into it and the infrastructure of the BPJS or the body that provides social health care non-discriminatorily is strengthening, but because trust to public institutions has been gradually eroded because of neoliberal policies, it takes a while until the trust is built again, especially under these times of high political pressure. So it boils down to economic disparity in many ways, doesn't Inequality, it? exactly, yes. Yeah. So let's focus on the elections and the, and the political system. And of course, Indonesia has just been to the polls. 
do all parties embrace social media and how is it used by the political forces? Is it very much a push out one way direction of information or do they use it to engage directly with voters? Different politicians and different political parties have different communication strategies. In my research, I look at it from the industry or the electoral campaign market. There are large players. They're not conglomerates, but polling agencies, political consultants are working together or have a digital marketing division within their institution, or they could also be working with big data analytics. They're also working with individual operators who analyze the survey data and then repackage it into infographics or offline engagement. And this is a very complex, very, very professional communication strategy. And this has been on the rise since decentralization and democratization because the capital that goes into these campaigns trickle down to the regions. Um, so it's quite sophisticated It's targeting. very, very sophisticated, yes. And younger digital campaigners are now part of this. Uh, some of them participate because they believe in the cause. Some participate because they don't have any job offers or it takes a while for them to go into the labor market. Some are still university students who are looking for pocket money. But they are digital natives and they know exactly how the swing voters, namely the millennials, um, digital natives, communicate with each other online. And, and do they interact? Do they, they, they start conversations? It's divided. I would say the two dominant practices would be uh, dissemination. So you have influential figures, buzzers, disseminating information. And then you have those small communities in which there can be feedback coming from the public. But during times of elections, the most effective way is effective meaning it becomes a discourse that is catched on by mainstream media is actually working with the influencers and buzzers. And what's a buzzer? A buzzer is a person who professionally makes sure that certain sentiments become viral. They monitor daily uh, the kind of uh, conversations that exist and also uh, what kind of news spread that's talked about with fear or sentiment, uh, negative sentiment, positive sentiment, and then they like throw balls and see which one bounces back. So if we compare social media and digital media to traditional media, what was the sort of breakup of the spend by the major camps in the latest election, Jokowi and Prabo? Was it 50-50 or do they actually put more into the digital space? There's no exact data regarding how much of their campaign funding goes into social media. There is data regarding the amount of campaign funding that goes into their strategy, but the number, they don't break it down. They don't break it down. Do you have a sense though? That would be an uneducated guess. It won't be as large as uh, the money that goes into mainstream media because it's much more expensive to buy television advertising than it is to mobilize online sentiments. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore, and I'm joined by Indonesia political scientist Dr. Inaya Rahmani. We're discussing the influence of social media on Indonesian politics. Let's look at that issue of fake news, which you've made the point. Indonesia is awash with fake news. How is it used by the political parties and to what extent is it rogue forces versus almost institutional? There is an article at The Guardian talking about the Muslim cyber army and also those from a hoax camp who were hired as buzzers and to create fake news. But it can't be directly related uh, to them because it's unknown whether or not they were hired or they did it voluntarily. So they're sort of at arm's length from the major parties, is that right? 
I don't have data to support that, but I think it's safe to say from the interviews that I did, people who invest or political parties or political candidates or actually investors who they don't know, some of them put in money to make sure that certain candidates win. Some of it is difficult to prove whether or not they did it voluntarily or they were hired professionally. What we do know is that they do mobilize sentiments, they do mobilize or spin news in a certain way so that it creates a certain effect among voters. But there's a difference between swaying voters by presenting information in a particular way and choosing what you present and actually presenting false information. I mean, how much is fake news and how much is just a a curating of the news to present a particular point of view? Yeah, there's what they call black campaigning and white campaigning and grey campaigning. So white campaigning, you positively build the reputation of the political candidate you're working for. It's usually called political branding. And grey campaigning is what you just mentioned as curating, curating news. So you kind of modify certain parts so that it becomes more convincing or worse off for a certain candidate. One person can have multiple false accounts, uh, usually called dolls or bots, robots. And what they do each day is have these accounts usually with profiles of women or unidentifiable names. And they talk to each other and talk about a certain topic. Sometimes these multiple accounts have the exact same content in them. And And, and the profiles of women are often attractive women to create attention. Yes, yeah. That was in the Guardian article and what we got from the interviews. So it's to create an illusion that it's true, even though it's not, because when people have been talking about it, it doesn't matter whether or not it's true, but everyone is talking about it. And we talked about the buzzers, but you've also coined the term engineering the Ummah. Tell me about that. The Ummah is an imagined Islamic community. It could be national, it could be pan-Islamic or transnational, it could be local. But there's a sense that as a Muslim, you're imagining your fellow Muslims, women, men from different sections of society, from different ethnic groups, races, and then you feel that there is a sense of brotherhood. This is a term that is often used. And some of the literature that I've read sees this as a a social movement that has a strong social basis. And it fights against neoliberal policies, this Ummah, because it's about working with Islamic politics to create better social justice. Engineering the Ummah that I write about uh, wants to show that market forces and political forces uses this idea that there is a cross-class alliance between Muslims in Indonesia to side with a certain candidate. So from the side of Prabowo, the engineered Ummah that is mobilized or that is constructed by political campaigners are those who who wants to show his Islamic credentials that is stronger from Jokowi. And on the side of Jokowi, his alliance with uh, Maruf Amin from Nahdlatul Ulama is mobilized or is worked through Islam Nusantara or Indonesian Islam that is more plural, that is more diverse, heterogeneous, and not at all close to the Middle Eastern version of Islam that is often associated with Hizbut Tahrir, uh, the Islamic Defenders Front. So these kinds of sentiment and symbols are what you can read online in everyday Twitter posts or Facebook posts. So it's like a captive online community in many ways that can be marketed to, that can be influenced. Yeah, the thing with community, you know the person. 
But with an engineered ummah, you can imagine it, but you can't really disprove or prove its existence. What is mobilizes a sentiment, it makes you feel a certain way. You may read the message, like for instance, don't eat this and this food from this franchise because it has pork in it. And then it spreads online through small WhatsApp groups. And, and where would it have come from? Will it be identifiable as to the original source? If it's end-to-end encryption, like in WhatsApp, you can identify the first source unless you work with WhatsApp, which they do not do because it's a private company who also monetizes on the privacy of the messages. So these things can spread like wildfire? It can, yes. And this was the reason why there was jamming on 22nd of May, the Jakarta riots after the announcement of the victory of Jokowi. Well, indeed, the government actually shut down parts of social media. You couldn't Mm -hmm. share videos. That was a very interesting move. What prompted it from the government's point of view? Real concern about spread of the riots? The first announcement from the government about this jamming, so it's like a sequential or... It's not a complete shutdown, so there's a delay in you sending messages and getting messages. And it was Minister Security Minister Wiranto that announced this jamming, and it was reinforced by Minister Rudiantara, Information and Communication Minister, that says this is to prevent the spread of hoax. The platforms that was jammed was Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp Messenger. Not Twitter? Uh, no, Twitter was not jammed, which uh, we found was interesting because... Uh, when we looked at our interviews and then asked again, uh, verified to our sources, Twitter was not jammed because the data is public available, whereas Facebook and WhatsApp, you can't. You would have to contact the platform in order to... Find out where it came exactly. from. Exactly. You can't mine the data. Twitter, you can mine the data. But what we thought was, if you're concerned about the spread of hoax then Twitter would also be a platform that you would want to make sure that there is that sequential jamming so that it doesn't spread, but it wasn't. Which means that the government also wants to watch, not only to make sure the spread of hoax doesn't happen, but also they want to watch what kind of fake news spread at what time. So what was the public response to that? Was it seen as necessary for public security or was it seen as a thin edge of the wedge? It's divided. People from civil society and proponents of civil liberty and human rights obviously think that this is a breach of privacy, that the government should not be able to trespass on personal communication. And then those who choose for a strong state because of these political times would think that this was justified. And recent interviews on mainstream media with representatives from the ministry and the police mentioned that patrols will be done by the police and these patrols, quote-unquote, are done online. And they explained that this does not trespass personal communication. It would be like going through alleyways in which we don't go into houses, but we go into alleyways and see what happens on the roads. That's a fine line, though. (laughs) There is a fine line, yes. And I would say that in democratic times, if we want to see a healthy democracy in which the public can express their opinion and put the government on uh, accountable, it would mean that you should increase the, the power of the public to express their opinion in a civil way and not patrol their interactions or their personal communications, because then people would go silent. And then, Do you think that is a real risk now in Indonesia, even though it's so vibrant? If this continues, a desire to have a strong state to make sure that there is social order, I think it is a bad precedence. I think the public should be able to put government officials accountable and have these channels to talk about it without fear of 
of it turning into fake news or hoaxes. So I think the task of the government should be that and not patrolling on personal communication. When public opinion is divided, though, that is difficult. Is it more a sense that people are looking for that strong state and therefore prepared to put up with greater regulation and more online patrols? Or is it more a sense of we are worried about democracy being eroded? Which has the greatest, uh, I suppose, power of public sentiment at the moment? If you see the narratives of these two political candidates, Prabowo and Jokowi, all voters choose for a strong state even those working to push for greater civil liberty and who uh, are pro-democratic agenda. It's why these narratives are so popular, uh, and not only in Indonesia, but all over the world, because these are times of uh, social and economic inequality, and it creates that sense of insecurity, and you want voters' desire for a strong figure to make sure that everything is okay, when in fact it's not. Unfortunately, I think that precedence shows that this strong state is desired by most people. And it's the task of, I think, journalists and academics to make sure that there is as wide a space for public opinion and mobilization as possible. At the same time, I guess, that as wide a possible a space for public opinion does raise the question about whether social media has really elevated the level of discussion and quality of political debate and quality of democracy or it's worked to erode it because of the amount of fake news and curating of opinions? I would say the latter, unfortunately, because market and political pressure, it is constant. It's constant and it's always there because there is the political campaign industry, people who are professional, who do that for their living, who actually practice it every day in a much more consistent way for diverse topics that align with each other and the political candidate they're supporting or trying to destroy. Is there any move or an industry to try and debunk fake news? I mean, is there fact-checking? Is there a desire from people to try and assess the validity of various claims? As we see we see in the US, we certainly see in Australia, where there are numerous fact-checking units and a politician says something and then it is checked to the best of people's ability. Does that happen in, in Indonesia? Yes, it does. There are several really, really good civil society organizations that debunk. One is Turn Back Hoax, which I have talked to regarding this. But again, um, the speed with which they can go, because they have to do it manually, they also have principles. These organizations have principles that they don't violate privacy, they don't embed themselves in the WhatsApp groups, they wait for members of the public to report a certain hoax, and then they verify it, they choose the news. And some of them are professional journalists, some of them are NGO advocates, communication strategists, etc. But the speed with which they can run, especially with consideration for ethics, etc., in comparison to the industry, Uh, the speed with which these organizations can verify is much slower than those in which cyber armies can produce sentiments. So are you optimistic or not about social media and its future in the political debate in Indonesia? Do you think that eventually that the weight of people's enthusiasm and genuine commentary will win out? Or do you think the forces of those who can manipulate are too great? My honest answer would be those who manipulate will have capital to do so because of the nature of our society. And this is all over the world because there is a small number of political and economic elites who can always put in money to spin and curate to manipulate the public. 
But I think that it's our responsibility, our social responsibility, to make sure that we have done everything in our capacity. If you are a journalist, then as a journalist. If you're an academic, then as an academic through our public institutions to strengthen and build trust towards public good uh, with the narrative that nobody gets left behind. Everyone is a part of this, no matter what your religion is, no matter what your ethnic group is, race is, nationality. We want to see a more just society. We want to see more redistribution of wealth. It's something I think many sections of society actually relate to but don't know how to realize. And it might not happen in this lifetime, but it's something to strive for, I think. So to say that I'm optimistic, I'm not. But I think we just need to keep on going. And you mentioned there the rest of the world. For Indonesia, I guess none of these issues are unique to Indonesia, but are they particularly pertinent because of where Indonesia is in its development cycle? Yeah, Indonesia is an emerging market. It's one of the largest democracies in the world. It's the country with the largest Muslim population And it's not in the Middle East. So it has very unique social attributes and it's an archipelago country. And we have heavily urbanized islands like Java, but we also have very remote areas. So I think Indonesia has a lot to contribute to the world in terms of richness. But it can only do so if it can explain itself well and knows exactly what's happening inside. And as things are, we still have a long way to go. Well, it is going to be an incredibly interesting journey to watch. Inaya, thank you so much for talking to Ear to Asia. Thank you, Ali. Thank you for having me here. Our guest has been Indonesia political scientist Dr. Inaya Rahmani from Universitas Indonesia. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up to date with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This This episode was recorded on the 20th of June, 2019. Producers were Calvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.